But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the Twelve called a meeting of all believers. They said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the Word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the Word. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. All of this was made possible because of the appointment of the first elders and deacons. Deacon means servant. When you serve at church, you help advance the kingdom of God. Well, that was uh, a great video. Uh, we call it a bumper video. And I mean, you could almost go home after, after that short little clip. But uh, I am going to preach a sermon to you, whether you like it or not. So we are uh, in Acts chapter 6 now. And if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn there. Acts chapter 6. And we're looking at uh, verses 1 to 7 this morning. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And you'll remember that back in September, we looked at this verse. It's a version of what we call the Great Commission. A commission is the, is the command of the king. He tells us what to do, and we do exactly what he tells us to do. And everybody said? That's what we do. And here's what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So let me just quickly recap for you what's going on. Uh, up to chapter 6, we are seeing the establishment of the church. We call it the early church. And we have been talking about what the Holy Spirit has been doing in the establishing of the church. Oftentimes when we talk about the book of Acts, we sometimes will call it the, the Acts of the Apostles. A better, a better description of what's happening here is that it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And you'll see that in just a moment. But we're looking at what the Holy Spirit is doing in establishing his church in Jerusalem. You'll notice that, that we're talking about what the Holy Spirit is doing. Throughout the book of Acts, throughout church history, it's never about what, what men do. Does everybody understand that? Uh, there's a big movement, uh, and it's been, actually it's not just recent, it's been going on now for decades, where, where churches now are trying to function the way a business functions. How many understand today we are not a business? We are not an organization. We are an organism. You're the difference between an organization and an organism. An organism is alive. An organization is, who knows? <laughs> Dead. It could be slightly alive. Uh, uh, who knows? But we do know this. The church is not an organization. It's an organism. It is alive. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We need to understand that. Because if you forget that, 
And you will begin to apply man-made methodologies to the advancing of the work of God. It doesn't work. So we can have discussions about vision and mission and strategies and logistics and go on and on and on and on. But what you need to understand at the end of the day, it's not what I do and it's not what the elders plan to do, it's what does the Holy Spirit want to do. If you forget that, then you run into big problems. And, and we see this through the history of the church where it's happened, where people forget about God and think that they can, they can grow the church on their own. Well, we see uh, right off the bat that Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus is building his church and all of the powers of hell cannot stop the advancement of the church of God, hallelujah. The church marches on. Sometimes it's called the church militant. What does that mean? Doesn't mean that we rise up with arms and we, we kill people to get them to join the church. No, no, no. It means that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to be triumphant. So this is what we're talking about, a triumphant church in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so right off the bat, we see this happening. The Holy Spirit is leading the church. The Holy Spirit's leading the apostles. The Holy Spirit's leading the, the first believers. On the day of Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit was poured out, the Holy Spirit led Peter to stand up and preach the gospel. And what happened that day after he was led by the Spirit? 3,000 people became Christians. Now, don't you think it's a good idea to let the Holy Spirit lead? He does a much better job than humans do any day of the week. And we read on in the next chapter. Peter's on his way to church, and suddenly he sees a lame man, and he is led by the Spirit to pray for that lame man, and that lame man is healed instantaneously. What happens next? Peter is led to stand up and preach the gospel once again. And what do we see happen? We see another 5,000 people are added to the church. Don't you think the Holy Spirit's doing a good job here so far? He knows what he's doing, right? And so here's Peter just being led by the Spirit. And then next thing you know, he's being arrested and he's being commanded, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't preach anymore. And then it says in verse eight of chapter uh, four, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, you killed the Messiah. Remember we said, Peter, that's not a good way to win friends and influence your enemies. But what's he doing? He's being led by the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what I just read to you. And then in chapter 4, they commanded Peter and John not to preach the gospel anymore. And it says Peter uh, is led by the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? He says to them, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? How many know that's a rhetorical question? <laughs> when you're talking to people that are supposed to know what it means to follow God, I mean, the, you know the answer to that. Well, the Spirit leads the whole church into, into communion. We call that koinonia. It leads them into, into community with one another. They're praying together. They're studying the scripture together. They're eating, taking communion together. They're fellowshipping together. It's all led by the Holy Spirit. No human mind could come up with this. You need to understand that. And that if you ever go to a church where they're talking about what they're gonna do and, and how they're gonna shape things and how they're gonna direct the church, you need to run from that church as fast as you can because that church is heading over the edge into the abyss. 
Note, just keep note of that. We read further on that people were led to, by the Spirit to sell what they had so that they could share with those who were poor and needy. And then we find that the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, what happened here? Well, again, the Holy Spirit's responsible for this. What's he doing? He's teaching the people in the early church to fear God. And that's critical. It's critical that we understand, even though we enjoy this intimacy with God, this, this intimacy that had never been known with God before, this intimacy that was brought on because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, this does not mean that we can play loose with God. And he makes it very clear, doesn't he, to that early church, that he is still the holy God of Israel and still must be treated with fear and respect. And now here we are coming to the end of the account of the establishment of the church in Jerusalem. Next Sunday will be our last Sunday dealing with what I would call part one in the fulfillment of this commission. Next week, we come to the end of the establishment of the church in Jerusalem, and then we move on to the establishment of the church in Judea and Samaria. Now you ask, when will that happen, Pastor Allen? Well, let me just quickly tell you that in January, we're gonna have a little break we're gonna do a study in John chapter nine, and we're gonna do something we've never done before. We are going to have uh, four, our four pastors preach. So I'm gonna preach on New Year's Day when no one's here. <laughs> I beg, would a few of you show up, please? Now, the, the, the payoff for preaching only on, on New Year's Day is that I only have to preach once. So <laughs> the others have to preach twice. Na, 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 na. Yeah, so January, December 25th and January 1st, both fall on Sundays, and there's one service at 10.30. Some churches were asking, well, should we cancel church on December 25th? <laughs> I mean, how ironic, how ironic that we would wanna cancel the Lord's Day on the day that the Lord is born, right? <laughs> so, if that doesn't make you feel guilty about staying away on Sunday the 25th, I don't know what will. But I know that you're all going to be here, right? Ah, uh, it's only six or seven on this side. I don't know. Yeah, December 25th and then January 1st at 10:30. So we're going to start, and then I'm going to start the first message, and then Pastor Joel will be the second one, Pastor Andrew the third, and Pastor Chris the fourth. And then, and then on the last Sunday of January, we're gonna jump back into the book of Acts, and we're gonna start looking at the development of the church in Judea and Samaria. It's gonna be absolutely thrilling. Well, here we are talking about something that we don't like to talk about. We're talking about problems in the church. How many know that that does happen sometimes? And uh, so far, the church has, has experienced some pretty big problems. Some, in fact, some very big problems. Uh, I mean, the first day, the day they were born, the day the church was born, Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit was poured out, they were mocked and ridiculed, and people were saying about the church, oh, well, they're just drunk. They're a bunch of drunkards. Remember that? How many know that that happens? We're constantly mocked and ridiculed. They don't, people don't understand what's going on here. Uh, Paul reminds us that, that people who are not born again, people that don't have the Spirit, don't understand the things of the Spirit. So of course they're gonna mock us and laugh at us, but don't let that, don't let that bother you, folks. It's happened from day one. 
What else has happened to the church? Well, another problem, they've experienced opposition from the government. The government said, stop preaching about Jesus. And how many know that that never stopped them? Didn't, didn't, didn't make a dent in what they were doing. It's like, again, Peter says, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? Sorry, we'll obey you on everything else. We'll be the best citizens in the world, but we ain't stopping preaching Jesus. The gospel's going forth, whether you like it or not. Well, then it levels up. And now we're gone, not from just opposition, we've now gone to persecution, where they are warned again, stop preaching about Jesus. And just so that you get the point, we're gonna flog you. We're gonna beat the tar out of you. And that's exactly what happened. And Peter and the, and the apostles, after that, they said, we can't take it anymore, we quit, we can't do, no, they didn't do that. What did they do? They rejoiced, they could be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And you think that that would be, I mean, just about all that the church could take, but no, what happens next? The leaders are locked up. What happens to a church if they don't have their leaders, if they don't have their pastor? Well, apparently, church marches on. And why is that? Because our ultimate leader is Jesus Christ himself, right? I'm, I stand before you this morning as your pastor, as your shepherd, but I'm not the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. I'm an underling shepherd. And then the next big problem is Ananias and Sapphira struck dead, and God uh, affirms the importance of the fear of the Lord. Now, you say that that was, that'd be quite a bit of problems to have to face as an early church. <laughs> We're talking about a, in a very short time they went through all this. But folks, it gets worse, and here's what happens next. It says, but as the believers rapidly multiplied, the church is growing fast. We're talking probably... 20, 30,000 people by this point. There were rumblings of discontent. Hmm, hmm. Yeah, for 2,000 years that's been happening. The Greek-speaking believers, they complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Now you remember that people were selling their property and bringing the proceeds so that that the apostles could make sure that poor people were, were being fed. And the, actually, the testimony of the early church is that there was not one, one hungry or needy person amongst them because all their needs were being met. But now, this is what, this is what happens. The discontent breaks out. There's, there's division in the church. Well, over the years, here's what I have found. I found that we can face just about any problem. We can face financial difficulties. We can face... Uh, we can face lack of training, we can face opposition from the outside, we can face denominational problems, shortage of workers, etc. But when it comes to division, when it comes to division, this is the greatest threat to the church. Persecution is not a threat to the church. History shows that wherever there's persecution, the church grows and multiplies. And we see, we saw that in communist Russia and, and the Ukraine, we saw where uh, in, in Cuba, we saw in different places where Christianity was, they tried to stamp it out, they tried to, to kill it. We saw that the church just multiplied big time. And that's exactly what happened, it multiplied. But when there's division, my friends, now we got a real problem. That's a big, big problem. Why? Because this is a problem from within. Now, I have, I, over the years, I have known countless numbers of churches that have died literally died, they've split, and then they all died, and they 
they died because of division in the church. And I got to say, thanks be to God that at Cross Church, we've experienced very, very little of this. I was reading uh, this past week of one pastor. They lost 200 people one Sunday. They, there's division in the church. There's discontent, and 200 people left. And he said, he said, I would gladly have taken persecution any day of the week. In fact, I would gladly go to jail. I would even die rather than go through the pain of the discontent. Well, there have been uh, a few over the years who have tried to cause division, but my experience is this, is that if the pastor and the eldership, the leadership and the membership are committed to unity, then what happens is that rather than a fight breaking out, God takes that divisive, divisive person out. This is what I've seen happen over and over and over again not just here, but in other places as well. And by the way, when I speak of that, I, I gotta tell you that the one thing, the, the, the one thing that causes me the greatest fear is doing anything or saying anything that is divisive in the body of Christ. And I'm telling you, God will not let a divisive person get off scot-free. You will come under the punishment of God or worse. And Paul actually warns of this. He warns of eating and drinking the blood of the Lord in an unworthy manner. And, and the fact is you just cannot take communion and be divisive or the Lord will take you out. You say, Pastor Allen, that sounds ominous. What do you mean? Well, you figure it out. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 and 30. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy way is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. What is the unworthy way? Well, it's anything that is divisive to the body of Christ. You can read about it yourself in 1 Corinthians 11. Read it later, not now. <laughs> this is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. Now do you know what I mean by the Lord will take you out? And we saw it, the Lord will do that. We, we saw that with Ananias and Sapphira. So I, uh, I don't wanna spend any more time on that, but I say that to you as a warning. You cannot get away with being divisive. Now in this case, the issue was dealt with. The apostles are wise to deal with this discontent immediately. It is instantly moved to the top of the agenda. How many know that when it comes to church life, there's a lot of things we gotta deal with here. It's a constant, constant barrage of things that, that we have to deal with. Christmas is coming, and we gotta make sure that's all taken care of. And the fasts are going to Israel, we gotta take care of them and make sure they're happy. <laughs> make sure their kids are dedicated, and, and, and the list goes on and on and on. It, it moves right to the top of the list. Everything has got to stop, and, and that has got to be dealt with instantly. It can't, can't, we can't allow anything like that to, to fester. And across church, that's how we function. We immediately move it to the top of the list. We deal with it instantly. All ministry comes to a stop, and that's what happens here. Everything comes to a stop. We're not doing another thing. We're not preaching anything. We're not healing anybody. We are going to deal with this right now. Why the urgency? 
Well, in John chapter 17, Jesus says, the world will know that you're my disciples. How? By your love for one another. If the whole church hates each other, <laughs> where are the disciples? So it's, it's of critical importance. In fact, here's something that you need to write down. The number one ethic in the New Testament is unity. Unity is the number one ethic. And you need to understand that. And so the church was at risk of becoming utterly useless. And how many know today there are a lot of churches that are utterly useless? Thanks be to God that Cross Church is useful. That God is able to do his great work around the world. Now, the church is led by the Holy Spirit of God until there is division, at which time there needs to be a resolution. The question is this. How do we solve this problem? How do we solve the problem of Greek-speaking believers complaining about the Hebrew-speaking believers? How do we solve that problem? Well, let me share with you some right and some wrong solutions to church problems. The, the first thing they did that was right is this. They called a meeting of all the believers. Did you see that? Can I just say this to you today? that you'll notice that across church we have a membership and that you cannot be a member until we know for sure that you are actually a believer. There's a lot of people who go to church that are in membership that are not believers. Now, I know that that might offend some people. It's not my intention to offend anybody. But you need to understand what it actually means to be converted, what it means to be born again, what it means to be surrendered or yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ. So they called together all the believers. They didn't call together just anybody. It's, it's only people who, who understand what's at stake. And what's at stake is obedience to Christ and the unity of the believers. And I want you to understand something. This is not an admission of defeat. No, no, this is, we're saying, hey, we gotta solve this, this issue. This is wisdom at work. So folks, sometimes we at Cross Church, we will have to call, we, we've called meetings, and it's, it's not like, oh no, there's problems in the church, we're about to die. No, 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 we're strong, and we wanna be stronger, and that's why we call everybody together, and we say we all need to be on the same page on this. We're all going in the same direction. We all believe the same thing. We're all committed to the same thing. Folks, we function as a body. This is not a dictatorship here at this church. And, but having said that, we're, we're not a democracy either. We're the majority rules. And this happens in many churches. And so churches all over the world are making bad decisions because they think the church is a democracy. The democracy is not a biblical idea. I don't know if that comes as a shock to some of you today. No, no. We are a spirit-led, elder-led, scripture-led body of people. We are looking to God for direction. We're not looking to people for direction. I thought I'd get a big amen to that, but I, maybe we're not. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Kazuntite. No, what are we doing here? We, we're seeking to function as a body of people that love each other and love Christ. We want to honor and glorify God. Now, 
We seek unity by appealing to God, by appealing to the scripture, and by appealing to the collective wisdom, godly wisdom of the body of Christ. That is how cross-church functions. So some of you have been coming here for, wonder, for a while and wondering how we function. Well, now you know. It's plain and simple as that. We are seeking unity. By the way, by the, way the thing that we discover about the early churches is something called koinonia, uh, from which we get the word in common. This is, what we're, this is what we're aiming for. So unity is the law here at Cross Church. And anybody who is divisive, then uh, I'm coming after you. And you're not going to be able to get away with your with your your angry, bitter divisiveness. And I and I and I say that for the sake of the body of Christ. Now, that's that's one of my responsibilities as a pastor. That's our responsibility as elders to to use discipline. And thanks be to God, it's something very, very, very rare. In fact, it's so rare I can't remember the last time I had to practice that. Well, here's the second thing we need to learn. There's a wrong way of doing things. And the wrong thing to do is to get the pastor to stop using his gifts and then to engage in trying to solve problems. And here's, here's what it says here. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. There's all kinds of pastors. Oh, yeah, that's what we're doing, running a food program. I've had pastors say that to me. And I'll say, well, is that your calling, to run a food program? And you should let somebody else do the preaching because your job is to teach the word of God, to pray and to teach the word. That's your job. That's my job as a pastor. Is that all right with you? It's the only way it's going to roll around here. My job is to spend time teaching the word and to, to pray, which I do. I do that on a regular basis. In fact, Saturdays are my days where I spend time in prayer for the services, I spend time praying for our church, uh, not just on Saturdays, but Saturdays are specially given to that purpose. And I, I want you to see something here. It says, we apostles, we have to spend our time teaching the word, not running a food program. We have to do that. That's what we're called to do. And why is that? Well, folks, the minute that the pastor stops preaching the word, the minute the st pastor stops praying, is the minute you start having problems. This is the minute problems get out of hand. And so what is my job? And I, I ha I've had a few people ask me to repeat this, so I'm gonna share it with you again. It's, my job is to do this, is to proclaim the, the gospel, or, or as the scripture says, to herald it. I mean, think of, think of uh, medieval Britain, where the heralds would come out and, and proclaim what it is that the king wanted. Well, that's what I'm doing. I'm heralding. I'm proclaiming what the king wants all of you to know. And what does the king want all of you to know? He wants you to know that you're a sinner in desperate need of the Savior. All in favor, say aye. All opposed. How many know that with the good news is a little bit of bad news? The bad news is that there's a second death. It's called the judgment. And that awaits every sinner. So you're a sinner, and that's what awaits you. Now, that's, that doesn't sound like good news, but wait, I'm not done. Point number three says that the good news is that God's love has sent us the Savior. You'll notice it says the Savior. It doesn't say a Savior. It says the Savior. 
to die in our place. And the good news is that he was resurrected from the dead, which now guarantees eternal life to all who believe in him. This is the good news. So you and I don't have to be afraid of dying anymore. This is what I am committed to. My job is not to repair the, the, the fight that's happening between the Greeks and the Hebrews. No, my job is to proclaim this. And then after that, we see that there's eternal life for all who repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And then we read that after you're justified, justified, again, fancy word, it simply means to be made right with God. You're declared right with God. That begins the process of sanctification in you, where the Holy Spirit is purifying you, making you like Jesus. Thanks be to God. I don't sanctify myself. I cooperate with the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying me. Say, Pastor Alan, does that always work? It sure does. You say, well, what happens if I sin? Don't worry. There's a little thing called God's discipline. You can read all about it in Hebrews chapter 12 because the Bible says God disciplines those he loves. And here's what you need to know, that God will discipline you until you finally learn what it is he wants you to understand. Isn't that good news? And then here's number six, you're dead to self, because that's what it means to be sanctified. You're dead to yourself, and now you live like Christ. You're doing his will and not your will. Now look at this. If we are all committed to being dead to self, now I'm not so, so worried or concerned about me. I'm now concerned about thee, or ye, or you, whatever pronoun you want to use. You know what? The problems in church are solved as soon as everybody dies for themselves. You know when people aren't dead to themselves because that's when fights break out. Because I'm fighting for my... Interesting, isn't it? That's not a biblical idea. You and I are not fighting for our rights, but I am fighting for your rights. I'm fighting for you. I want to make sure that you're happy. I want to make sure you're taken care of. I want to make sure that you're healthy that you're provided for, and I want to make sure that God's will is being done. This is the gospel, folks. This is the good news. So when people say, Pastor Alan, why don't you get into the, why don't you preach social justice causes? Because I completely reject the premise of that idea. I have something else altogether different than social justice. I have a thing, a little thing called the gospel, which is utterly and completely different. And we could talk about that sometime, but that's going to take hours for me to help you understand that. And so, of course, the last line in the gospel list is when you die, you will be glorified. You will see heaven. Glorification is when sin is finally stamped out and killed and destroyed in you once and for all. Hallelujah. Okay. The third thing we recognize in terms of right and wrong solutions to church problems is that you need to select a group of men who can take care of the people. It says, and so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. The reason there's seven is because in, I think it's in the Mishnah, it, it says establish or elect seven men who will then give leadership in your town or your village and so that's basically what they're saying. We'll say, it's the only system they know, so they, they use that. So we'll take these seven men, 
They're well-respected, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we'll give them the responsibility of solving the problem so we can get back to preaching and praying and preparing and studying the word so that you can hear the gospel, which transforms everybody. And everybody said? So at at this point, these men were not uh, called deacons or elders. That's interesting, because I I always wonder, well, are they deacons or are they elders? And if, which, what are they? We don't know yet. It's the Apostle Paul who's the one that establishes uh, the whole governance model of the early church. And, and so at this point, Paul's not even a Christian yet. He's still going around calling himself Saul, and he's a Pharisee. In fact, he's killing Christians, which is really quite unique to watch the development of the early church. Because on the one hand, he's killing everybody, and then he, next thing you know, he's converted, and then next thing you know, he's actually setting up governance model or polity, whatever you want to call it, where we now have elders in place, and we have, we have uh, deacons in place, and people are serving in their various ways. Listen to what Paul says about the qualification of, of, a, of, a, of a servant like, like this. He says in 1 Timothy 3, 18 to 12, in the same way, uh, in the same way, deacons must be well respected and have integrity. They must not be heavy drinkers or dishonest with money. They must be committed to the mystery of the faith now revealed and must live with a clear conscience. Before they are appointed as deacons, let them be closely examined. If they pass the test, then let them serve as deacons. Deacon, the word deacon, the aquanet means simply, uh, the aquanos means servant. In the same way, their wives must be well respected and must not slander others. By the way, when we choose uh, elders, we, we make sure that their wives fit the bill as well. They must exercise self-control, be faithful in everything they do. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and he must manage his children and his household well. And of course, you can read all about this in in both in uh, Titus chapter one and First Timothy chapter three. There's more of a description of this. So, so here's the thing. Uh, we've got these godly men in place, and, uh, and, then, and then here's what we read. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, Stephanos, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philippos, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas of Antioch, who... Luke points out, is an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So here's the thing, the people, they loved what the apostles were doing. This was good news and unity is quickly restored. All the division is put to rest once and for all because everybody understood that that the goal is unity. There's no more division. Hey, can I just say this? Over the years, I have seen people in church who are divisive simply for the sake of being divisive. Does that sound demonic to you? And yet I've seen it, I've seen it so many times. And if you're divisive for the sake of being divisive, don't stand too close to me because you come under the judgment of God. You cannot do that. You cannot get away with that. And I've never yet seen anybody get away with that. If you come to church and you're divisive in the body of Christ, you will come under the judgment of God, and I promise you that. That's a money-back guarantee. And so here's the thing, what I would say to you, you must be vigilant. You and I must be vigilant. If you ever hear anybody being divisive, 
bad-mouthing the pastor, bad-mouthing the elders, bad-mouthing the, the people of, of the church. Just tell them to shut up. I know parents don't like their kids to use that word, but there it is. <laughs> Just tell them, shut up. You are going to come under the judgment of God, and I don't want to be anywhere near you when that happens. It's, it's, there's too much at stake. Now, you notice that all these, these seven men, very interesting, all of these seven men are Greek. Did you ever notice that? It's the poor Greek widows. They're the ones that are complaining about being left out when the food's being distributed. The, the Hebrew women are widows are taken care of first. And Paul, uh, the, the, Peter and, and uh, the apostles say, well, we know how to take care of the Greek widows. We'll appoint seven Greek Christians to take, make sure that they're taken care of. And by the way, these seven Greek Christians, they're taking care of everybody. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. Who else but Greeks could take care of Greek widows? And when I say Greek, I'm talking about Greek Christians, by the way. These men are full of faith. What does that mean? Everybody knows that to, to, to have faith means to believe God and Oh, I'm so glad you said that. You understand exactly what I mean. These, everybody recognizes these men are men of faith. They actually believe whatever God says, and then they do whatever God says. It's, it's that simple. And they're full of the Holy Spirit. We keep talking about grace. This is what we're talking about. When, when, when you are, are full of the Spirit, what's happening now is that you are recipients of God's grace at, at work in your life. And we just went through five weeks of discussing the nine habits of, of Christ followers, what it means to, what we need to do in order to receive this grace of God. And I, I want you to notice something here, because, because, uh, because when, when Luke wrote this, the Holy Spirit impressed it upon him to include this phrase, that this Nicholas of Antioch was an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. This man was, was a Greek, hungry to know God, crying out to know the living God, and God revealed himself, and so that's why he became a convert to Judaism. And then when Christianity came, then again, his heart is hungry for God, and then he goes the next step and he converts to Christianity. An absolutely beautiful picture of godly men that lead the church. And so what's the, what's the outcome of all this? What's the outcome of this, this, this awesome biblical problem-solving? Watch this. So, do you notice how big the so is? <laughs> okay, how, how can I stress that? I know, I'll get a huge font. Nobody will miss that. So we could say, and so, or therefore, God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Wow. Folks, look at this. When we do things God's way, when we are committed to the unity of the body of Christ, then God's will is accomplished in his church and God's will is accomplished in this world that desperately needs the message of Jesus Christ. But you have to do things God's way. And so the church grows there's unity. The preaching of the gospel goes unhindered. 
Listen, folks, when there's division in the church, when there's disunity, the gospel is hindered. It can't go forward. It stops dead in its tracks. The gospel becomes inauthentic. It becomes hypocritical if the people who are proclaiming it, if the, if the people who claim to, to embrace it can't function by it. Does that make sense? It, it, it now becomes an inauthentic message. But for those who are devoted to unity, who are committed to one another, now the gospel is in fact a message that is miraculous. It is a miracle message of the power of God to make human beings who are so utterly and completely selfish become one, a one heart, one mind. Folks, it's a miracle. It's abs- the church of Jesus Christ is an absolute miracle. And so I know what you're wondering, Pastor Allen, how does this apply to me? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. And we'll close with the answer. You and I need to remember that at the end of the day, the most important thing is not you. At the end of the day, I am not the most important thing in this church. I'm last. I'm at the very bottom, the very, very bottom the lowest of the low, that's, that's where I am. You come first. My wife comes first. My family comes first. My staff, the elders come first. Members come first. Church comes. Everybody, the community comes first. When we function like this, this is authentic Christianity. And when you function like this, you're going to have a happy marriage. Did you hear that? When you put yourself last, your marriage will thrive. You put yourself first, your marriage will die. You put yourself last, your family will thrive. Your children will respect you. They will admire you. They will obey you. They will love you because you are exemplifying the very spirit of Jesus Christ who laid down his life, who gave himself for us. Folks, even the Jewish priests were responding. And by the way, I don't really like the way this version says it. And many of the Jewish priests, you know what it says in Greek? It says there's a, a throng, a multitude, a massive number of people, of priests who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. That is the power of the gospel. It transforms, it changes, it liberates, it sets free the captive. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit at work here at Cross Church. We thank you, O oh God, for what you're doing in our hearts and lives. This morning, we're reminded that the thing that matters more than anything is that we lay down our lives for Christ, completely dead to self. That's the message of the pulpit of Cross Church. It's death to self and total total obedience and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our King and our Lord, our Master. And so, Father, we pray as we go from this place, may we go as authentic, authentic Christians, not hypocrites, authentic believers who love and care for all the brothers and sisters in Christ. May we go from here, O God, as examples to this dark world of what it means to be a Christian. We prayed in the name of Jesus. And everyone said it with me.
Tell the person beside you, go in unity. 